All right, good morning. Howdy, howdy, howdy. All right, it is the April 15th, 2018 episode of The Garage Pod. Yes, it is. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to be talking about routine. What does, that, what does that word mean to you, Dean? Routine. What's the first thing that pops into mind? So first thing that pops into my mind is just your, your daily stuff. Your daily right? shit that you do over and over again Yeah. until you die. Yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> if you're not lucky, you will live forever, much like Sisyphus. Yes. Much like so you keep rolling that ball up there. That'd be awful. Who's the guy, Dean? Was it Prometheus that has his like entrails plucked out of him by seagulls forever and ever? No, Prometheus was the guy who built the wax and feather wings and flew too close to the sun. No, Prometheus, no, Prometheus was the fire was the guy. guy. That was Icarus. Icarus is the wings guy. Prometheus is the one who stole the fire from the gods. Right. And, and, and yeah, he was um, sentenced to being like staked out to a rock. <laughs> and yeah. this partic- one particular eagle would come by and eat his liver right, every day. Right, every and day. then it would regrow. Man, that sucks. And for some people, that's... What comes to mind when they think of routine? Yeah, it sounds like my my normal day at the office. <laughs> yeah, so day to day, so I, I figured massive repetitive liver damage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of these myths, Dean, is that they're you know, I mean, infinitely uh, applicable. Oh, totally. Right? There's yeah. there's still power in that set of symbols <laughs> for us. I think <laughs> that's what it is. That's yeah. what it is. So like uh, you know. Bakken orgies still thing today, mm-hmm. just by a different name. Yeah, what do you call it? You call it like a rave. It's the same deal. Yeah. Everybody kind of getting club hedonism. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody kind of immersing themselves in mind altering substances and sexuality. The music is better now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Arguably. I think. Well, okay. Look, you do a thing enough, you start to get better at it, right? True. You participate True. in like the the bacchanalia. For enough millennia, you kind of start to perfect it. That's right. And maybe that's where we are. I, I hope to God we are in uh, on the frontier of some new and exciting uh, galaxies of, of hedonism. You know, it makes me wonder, like, how much better that kind of, I don't know, gathering or exercise of the human condition, yeah. how much better that's going to be in, like, a thousand years. Oof. I mean... Will you even have to do it in real life? There'll probably be no toll on your body. Yeah. You'll probably just hook up into like a fully immersive VR and just live thousands of years worth of hedonism. Yeah. Like per- the perfect hedonism. So, no consequences, right? Because you wouldn't be hurting anybody. It'd be all AI. Do you think that's maybe the... the oh, okay, do we, man, this is probably our, our record for getting on. <laughs> right. Lay it on me. Yeah. So do you think that, that that's the, the new frontier of um, you know pleasure seeking is not necessarily... Uh, trying to find new forms of feeling good because we've pr- got a pretty good handle on how to feel good. Maybe the, the new frontier is how to feel good without consequences. Well, yeah, and without hurting other people. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever I mean, those consequences and, are. And, you know, that's something, like, very arguable, too. Like, there's always going to be consequences either to your body or to other people. So we have to have, like, very high levels of consent, and you have to accept the consequences, and we need to be very clear-eyed, right? So, I mean, you go to a rave and take a bunch of ecstasy and go wild. I mean, there's going to be a, a toll taken on your body. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no biological, and I'm barring this from some scientist that has made the rounds on the podcast, and I, I forget his or her name. There's no biological free rides. Mm-hmm. Any, like, good thing that's happening, you're going to – you're you're basically paying into a, a debit system, and you, you're going to have to pay it back. Right. 
hangovers. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hangovers, yeah. perfect For, example. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking like even just consequences of you know, yeah. If, if you're a person who's into you know hurting other people or doing something terrible and, and whatever, like, yeah. um, all right, well, we'll we'll build you a little simulator where you can go do all these awful things that you want to do. So, I mean, that's kind of an argument for um, this going on right now about, like, okay, video, there's some, like, very graphic, violent video games out mm-hmm. there. And there's some, like, very, I mean, there's, they call them exploitation movies. So, like, yep. your Saw or your Hostel, there's just, like, movies about torture. And then, you know, there's, like, for those who, you know, have dived deep into that genre of cinema, there's, like, a Serbian film. Yeah, so don't look up a Serbian film. Yeah. Just don't. Serbian film irreversible i've never seen it and there's no way in hell i'm ever gonna watch that movie but like i i and sincerely it, it, regret reading the like plot synopsis yes yeah. and it gets made yeah let's well, taxidermia is another one all all weird foreign films i think yeah was and and we don't need to talk about serbian film anymore it's french it's french okay yeah. was it serbian i don't know no oh, that was the where it was set you know there's another really good one i was talking with our mutual friend and movie lover uh, the other day, there's a French movie called Martyrs, which is another one that was just fucking insane. Just awful. Yeah, it was crazy. It was a good movie, though. Yeah. Um, in any case, I so I think the argument here is, are you setting somebody up like you're giving them a taste? It's not an outlet. It's a it's a primer. Do you say mm. primer or primer? Primer. Primer. I, uh, I heard somebody on the radio say primer. Yeah, well, people are idiots. Good. Okay. <laughs> I'm right. I'm right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, are we are we giving somebody a uh, pressure release valve where they're gonna act they're gonna act out in this way anyway? So let's give them a safe place to do it. Or are you training somebody to um, lower the barrier to to engaging in these activities maybe in real life by giving them a you know a taste of it in you know a simulation? Or the if there wasn't this kind of explicit formula or you know movie or game or whatever out there, would this have exist as some kind of unformed, un like you know misunderstood just kind of drive in them that never would have been acted on until they saw the movie that kind of catalyzed? Oh, that's what I like. That's maybe, what I want. Maybe on the individual level, but I think on like the social level, I don't really buy, and I, I have no scientific basis for this but i don't, yeah, really, me neither. Buy, me I don't neither. really buy into the argument that like society has gotten more depraved i'm pretty sure humans have been equally shitty like well did you ever read history. like 120 days of sodom the marquise uh-uh. de sod actually so yeah i mean the sod marquise de sod uh sadism comes from right. his last name uh-huh. right? so he was like in jail and was still writing this like disgusting sadistic kind of depraved shit yeah this is way before the internet mm-hmm. i mean and it was like it's just, uh, I, I read it in college. I mean, it's just pretty much depraved as you get. Yeah? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I mean, being, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I've read a lot of stuff. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know that there's many new frontiers right. that haven't existed for, you know, I mean, since the, when did Marquis de Sade write? 1400s? Yeah, like yeah it, it's, it's been a long time. Right. It's been a long time. I mean, it's been probably after that. It was probably like the yeah. 1600s or something, right? Anyway, that's that's a long time ago. Yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Like people have been being awful to each other since there have been people. Um, so, you know, maybe we're getting a little bit more. Uh, we have a little more capability of like identifying people being awful nowadays than we yeah. used to. Yeah. Uh, but you can't hide it as well. Right. Right. Because right? there's, I mean, you can't hide anything as well these days. As maybe, is routine. All right. 
Yeah. So okay. So hold on. So here's another couple of things. So if you can simulate a perfect reality, right? So if your simulation is indistinguishable from reality, there would be no need to advance that any further. Okay. Well, I've experienced the simulation. Now I need to go do it in real life. Mm-hmm. Well, there's going to be no difference except for the fact that in one there's consequences and in the other there's no consequences. Why, right? It, that would be the argument for that experience being a release valve because there's complete parity except for you do one, you're going to go to jail forever once you get caught, and you're like, honestly, you're probably not thinking too hard about human life if you're already in this zone. Okay. And, you, and you're here to hurt an actual another human being, which is why you're experiencing the consequence. And in the other, you have none of those things. You just get, you get your jollies and then you unplug and get out. But I think that trying to put myself in the mind of the, you know, insane damaged person um uh, i think maybe part of the appeal is the hurting an actual real person maybe part. yeah you're probably right and it probably wouldn't feel very authentic feel very authentic if you knew that this is a simulation that's true you know regardless of how visceral and real it is yeah um you're still that, that power dynamic isn't there that's true you know man there's I mean, a- really that power dynamic is really part of it it is about we we could we Dean and I discussed doing a whole podcast about power, but we, there's too much research involved. Yeah, I mean we're talking about one day, one day, one day. Yeah, um, Luke, what does your routine look like? Okay. Walk me through a day in the life. All right, so I go down into my basement for my usual <laughs> victim. <laughs> Just kidding, y'all. Um, <laughs> I don't have a. There's no basements. We're in Texas. That's right. My victims are out in the shed. shed, (laughs) We call it the bunker. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this has changed a lot, and I've kind of come to um, kind of you know at least a very tiny sliver of self-realization that I perform a little bit better as a human being under maybe sort of a little bit stricter habit, Mm -hmm. a little bit stricter routine. Um, I'm not going to distinguish between the two right now. Maybe we get into that later on but for now i'm going to use the two terms interchangeably uh my routine is um get up at six maybe a little earlier if like um my uh my uh partner is like very tired or mm-hmm. or like not feeling well or you know i just am decided to be nice i'll get a little bit earlier if i'm doing the morning dog walk mm-hmm. so about 5:45 if i'm doing the morning dog walk um i We'll do that or not do that, right? Get done with it about 6. So I'm out of bed and brushing my teeth mm-hmm. at 6 o'clock, uh, maybe a little after. You know, I mean, we're, we're talking about plus or minus 15 minutes sure. at any point in the schedule. Uh, but not really much more Okay. unless I'm very hungover. Yeah. At which point I will describe my hungover uh, routine, a routine, which I, which I have and yeah. is very regular as well. Uh, so brush my teeth. I take my vitamins. Mm-hmm. I um, before that I'll put on my my gym clothes, um, and I and this is a workday routine. Um, and I will um, head downstairs. Okay, yeah. Clothes, teeth, vitamins. Head downstairs. I make a protein shake. I drink it. I put a protein powder in a Ziploc bag to take to work for after I work out. I um, pack my um, clothes up for after the gym, um, yeah, into my backpack where I also put the protein powder, 
in the truck, drive to work, takes about 15 minutes. I have a gym at the office. It's very nice. Um, convenient, I should say. <laughs> convenient, I should say. Yeah, very lucky man. I work out for 45 minutes to an hour. I shower, and then that's where I do kind of the um, – I even do this in the same order. Shampoo first, then body wash, um, and then I do hair comb, then I shave, and then deodorant, and then um, obviously put on clothes, glasses, everything, go, go to work. Um, then I do a protein shake, and then I do a coffee and then that's kind of that's kind of how I that's kind of how I start my day. For the first hour of the workday, I'm very much a close my door, don't talk to me. I'm gonna get caught up. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, you know I'm gonna answer my emails. I'm gonna look at my calendar for the day. I'm gonna make any notes or lists I need for the day. I'm gonna reply to stuff. Uh, I meditate for between five and ten minutes mm-hmm. in that kind of hour block where I don't like to remain disturbed. And then my day kind of really starts, and that's much less structured. Um, I have kind of an amalgam of meetings and spreadsheets and just, you know, work stuff, which doesn't go in any discernible pattern. Um, at uh, 4 o'clock, maybe a little later, maybe a little earlier, depending on how my meetings go, um, I head home. Uh, when I get home, I uh, walk the dog. I get back. I open a can of orange soda, typically. Mm-hmm. It's a diet orange soda. It's a diet sunkist. I, I like it a lot. And I go upstairs, and I write for 15 minutes. If I have time before my partner gets home, I will play uh, maybe a little bit, 13 min- uh, 30 minutes or 15 minutes of video game. Mm-hmm. Um, then I go downstairs and start dinner. I typically cook because I like to do it. I find it very relaxing and rewarding. Um, and yeah, come home. We chat about our day for about 15 minutes. Um, then I will cook dinner. Then we'll eat dinner. And then we'll watch about either – we'll either watch an hour or two of TV or we'll both be reading mm-hmm. um, and then head to bed around 9 o'clock. Mm-hmm. E- either read or dick around on my phone for half an hour. Um, and then either fuck or go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Usually um, asleep by 10 o'clock, depending on how vigorous my reading or sex is. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's pretty much every week. To, that's and you know detailed. what? God dang it, Dean! I like it. There you go. I like it like yeah, that. Sounds great. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about your initial reaction because I don't think you even knew about my day in that detail. That was that's way more granular than I've ever known. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. I mean, that <laughs> sounds super healthy. It sounds like you're getting up at a good time. Um, you've got some good kickstarters to make sure that you're kind of accelerating into the day, being productive. I used um, to do. I used to chug a big cup of cold brew with my initial morning protein mm-hmm. shake, but I found that the combination of coffee and protein delayed my workout a little bit, just because it kind of ran through me. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine so. Yeah, so usually it's my <laughs> first morning bowel movement. Is with that first cup of coffee. Yep. So I'm, yep. I'm I'm pretty pretty regular in that regard as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is nice. Oh, that's part of the routine, man. <laughs> uh, no, that sounds super healthy, man. You're making time for yourself. You're making time for your partner. You're, uh, you know, obviously have your your productive work stuff blocked off. You've got a workout built in there. Yeah. Um, a, a relatively sane bedtime. Um, yeah, that sounds like it's a, an er- it's an earlyish bedtime. I know we're in bed by nine. Asleep by ten, typically. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the target. That's the yeah. target. Um, that's I excellent. Also, I also, you know, no eating, no drinking at least 
by by after eight o'clock, usually no drinking any liquids because mm-hmm. I like to. I'm trying to have better sleep hygiene, mm. so I'm trying to do less food, less liquid, less screens before before bedtime. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Smart. Smart. Yeah. yeah. Nice man. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Boring is so okay. So I know I've been kind of hogging this, and, but I do want to say it no. was an adjustment to get used to the routine because I kind of had a mental block that will like. I had this picture of this is the boring adult, right? This is, you know, this is the suit. This is the robot. This is the automaton. Sure. I never want to do this. I want to have some excitement, excuse me, some excitement, some variation. Uh huh. And so that was always kind of, I always felt some resistance to slipping into kind of this hard of a routine. Um, but. You know, I, I think I was maybe holding on to something that may not have ever been there. Yeah. I'm much happier. I sleep better. I feel better physically. I'm mentally sharper. I'm writing, right? I'm being creative. I'm doing literally all the things I've ever wanted to do, and the routine helps me do that. And I fully recognize that not everybody is most productive in a routine mm-hmm. at all. Um, for me, I don't know. I, I, I guess I was kind of in resistance to my own default productive state of being for a long time just because i don't know there's maybe a social maybe a personal some sort of weird psychological baggage that i had against being kind of the uh, stereotypical boring adult adult nine to fiver right but i mean i i think your your understanding is exactly right that you know as a as a young person you think i don't ever want to be that rigid because i that's obvious um that you're that to be that rigid you are giving up some some type of um you know, some ability, some space to go do the things that you really want to do. And as an adult, I've found that really it's the opposite is true, that having a more uh, constructed, deliberate routine actually gives you the space to do the things you want to do, where if you're just scattered all over the goddamn place, um, you're going to find yourself, you know, not having the time built into your day to do the things that you want to do, you know. Um, so being, being on a routine actually gives you a little bit more freedom than being, you know, completely unmoored from from any type of any type of routine, uh, so at I, least in my experience. Yeah, I had a weird thought about this in the shower one morning. Uh, I kind of thought of myself like 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 a dog. Uh-huh. Right, dogs love to play. If they're you know if they're kind of have high energy like I do, what happens when you let the dog off the leash in the front yard? Mm-hmm. It's going to run off. Mm-hmm. It's going to have too much freedom. It may get hurt out there. Right. right, it's gonna run off. It's gonna want to run and play, and there's zero structure, and that will be harmful to the dog. You put the dog in a backyard. It's fenced off. It can play. It can laugh, and it's still safe. It still gets fed and groomed. It can come inside every now and then. Can laugh? Can laugh? Did I say laugh? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I am really anthropomorphizing that dog. Totally. It's a good <laughs> yeah. analogy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's weird, but it's it's stuck in my brain for some reason. Well, no, I'm sure the uh, you know the authoritarian fascists in the world would, would totally agree that yes, you know, uh, uh, structure is freedom. You know, work is is you know tranquility and, and and obedience is peace. You know, like the work makes you free. Yeah, work. Dean, shame on you. Arbeit macht free. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow. What, how long is it? How long did it take for the Holocaust joke? Uh, it was 19 minutes. Because great, Jay. We, we great got job. it in under 20. That's great job. Impressive. Wow. Yeah. That's a new record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, I will say that my routine is a little bit more uh, loose than yours. Um, some of that is, you know, based on my, my 
professional responsibilities are a little bit looser. Um, and also a lot of it's just me, my, me personally, like I, I'm, I'm bad at, you know, personal discipline in terms of like maintaining a schedule. Um, I wish I was a little bit more disciplined. I think I would be more productive professionally and I would have less stress in my life if, uh, I really think that like 80% of my life stress would be solved if I could just get the fuck out of bed earlier. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, here's the funny thing is I used to think that too. Right? I, I used to, I had pegged myself as not a morning person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was talking to the, he, he's the guy that runs the gym at the office. And I was like, man, I'm really not a morning person. And then I started describing my morning routine. It's like, yeah, I really hate getting up at six and I have to like pack up all my clothes the night before mm-hmm. and to make my morning routine as simple as possible so that when I do get up at 6 a.m. and have my shake and drive to work and work out before I go to work, man, and just make it easy on myself. He goes, bro, listen to what you just fucking said. You're up at 6 a.m. You're working out. You feel good. I had to break it to you, bro. You're a morning person. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's been an evolution there. But, but I never used to do that. Never used to, I, I mean, that was never me for no. my whole life Mm-mm. until it started becoming a routine. Right. And my body just adapted. I, I've always said, you will always astound yourself at what you can get used to. Yeah, it's true. It's true. We're pretty adaptive uh, creatures. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, sorry, I interrupted no, you. No, no, not at all. T- no. Tell uh, me about your routine, Dean. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't work out in the morning. I work out in the afternoons, um, mainly because I've, always, I've, I've been convinced that I'm not a morning person and that I'll just, you know, snooze through the alarm anyway, so why make myself feel guilty for not going to the gym, you know? Anyway, um, so I'm usually up between, like, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, our office officially opens at, at, at 8, but, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I mean, you leave just rolling, whatever. Um, so I'll usually get up in the morning, you know, get dressed, turn on my podcast, listen to my news or, or my book or whatever it is in the morning, um, drive to work. Really the biggest variance in my day, and this is kind of embarrassing, is whether or not I stop for a Starbucks, you know? Do you, wait, so you wake up, do you turn on your podcast or whatever on like a, a speakers or something, or do you pop your headbuds in, or how, how does that work? It depends on my partner's schedule. If she's still home, then I'll put on, put in uh, headphones, but if she if she left before me, then then I'll just blast it through speakers throughout the bedroom. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I, I'm always listening to something when I'm getting ready for you know for work. I've got some you know little daily news podcasts that that I really like, and um, and then usually when I burn through those, I'll you know because they're, they're like little like 10, 15, 20 minute podcasts. Um, and then whenever I burn through those, I'll, I'll switch over to my book, and usually my book is what I'm doing all the way to to, to the office. Um, get to work, work, you know, all day, whatever, um, leave usually, you know, six, seven o'clock in the evening or whatever is when I walk out of the office. Um, Ooh, that's late. Yeah. Well, you know, I go in a little bit later, uh-huh. uh, and frankly, okay. So, you know, you talk about your schedule when you get to work, you know, yeah. sit down for the first hour and answer yeah. emails, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know myself and I know that like before 10 a.m., if I'm in the office or I'm not in the office, I'm not getting a whole lot done, you know? <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm the complete opposite. Because, by, I mean, I, I'm just constantly on the phone, right? Uh, and that nonsense on the phone is is a gas. It will expand to fill whatever space <laughs> I give it in my day, you know? Um, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm usually a little better if I just kind of only give myself a certain number of hours where people can actually call me and bother me. Um, because really where I'm productive 
like the vast majority of my work work gets done between like five and seven p.m. You know, really? like once the phone stops ringing, five and seven p.m. Wow. Yeah. So you're so you're on the phone for most of your day. Most of the day, yeah. I'm either I'm in sales, so it's either calling new folks or dealing with problems. Um, and usually, every time somebody calls me, it's just something that I have to add to the list of stuff I need to do. And there's always somebody else calling. Yeah. And my list of shit that I need to get done that day is just constantly growing. And then so usually about 5 o'clock, I can stop. You know, my phone's still ringing, but I'll, I'll stop answering the phone. Right. And then I can start actually trying to, like, Holy remove shit. things from the list. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what that normally looks. And then, um, yeah, so I'll leave, you know, between 6, 7 o'clock. Um, I've got a bit of a commute, so get home, you know, 8-ish <laughs> or so. Uh, immediately turn around and go to the gym, uh, work out for an hour, hour and a half, come home. And, um, uh, my wife usually does the, she does the cooking, um, because again, she, you know, she likes it uh, not because that's her job. Right. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll usually eat, you know, sometime around nine thirty, ten o'clock. Um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we'll, and we'll hang out, talk, you know, do, do all that, all that stuff. Um, take the dog for a run, whatever. And then, um. Uh, and then we'll usually like yeah settle into either watch some TV or doing some reading or playing video games or yeah. whatever. And then uh, I'm usually my goal is to try to be in bed by midnight. Yeah, uh, is is usually my my and again that's that's me just I've always been kind of a night owl. Yeah. You know, like mornings aren't, aren't really my thing. And I don't know that I'm 100 percent happy with my routine. Oh, I think I would prefer to get up a little bit earlier, um, and give myself a little bit more space in the morning to like sit down and, you know, have a cup of coffee and, yeah. you know, just not just be up and rushing out the door every day. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of my normal day to day routine. Um, I'm, I'm less satisfied with mine than I think you are with yours. So on here was the big key for me switching my workout to the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Because after I work out, I mean, I'm full of testosterone, full of endorphins. Um, my heart rate is like, I don't, I'm like totally vasodilated. Like my, yeah. my body is like feeling really good and it's out of the way. Mm-hmm. So that psychological thing of having the most unpleasant, well, d- depending on how you feel about working out, but right. The biggest chore of the day is done. Right. All the rest of the stuff is just gravy. Stuff you want to do. And then yeah. I'm in the office. I'm still a little bit earlier than a lot of my colleagues. I do have the time to sit down, drink coffee, meditate. Read check, the news. Yeah. I, yeah, check the emails, make sure I have my thing today, and then I still have about 30, 15 minutes just to write, check the news. Um, do any nice. kind of like personal stuff you got to do. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And my yeah. door's closed, and nobody cares that my door's closed because right. I'm too early. Right. Um. And uh, I don't know. I just I and all my most productive stuff. I mean, it happens, and I I do a late lunch too. Mm. All right. So I I I I don't know. I I saw you know, and it always stuck with me. I don't know how much of this is just in my head, but I was watching Deer Hunter, one of my okay. one of my favorite movies, and uh, Christopher Walken's character. He says something like. Um, he doesn't want to eat because he says, uh, I, I like to starve myself because it, it, it keeps me like sharp yeah. or, or something like that. Anyway, for me, I only have a couple of protein shakes for breakfast and then I don't eat until one. Um, and I am most productive in the time between my kind of meditation in the morning after the workout and my one o'clock lunch. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know. It just it. Do you feel like you're less productive after you eat? Yeah. Yeah. It starts winding. Well, because I'm kind of done with work. I don't do lunch. I'm kind of done with. The lighter the lunch I have, the more productive the yep. more productive I am in the afternoon. Yep. But yeah, I would say the the morning workout. One, I'm up early enough to beat traffic. Mm-hmm. No no commute on my way to work, which and my my commute coming back is a lot worse because I'm I just take a high volume route for yeah. work in the morning. But if you're up at six and you're in the car at six fifteen six thirty, you're all set. There's nobody else out there. Yeah, you're all set, right? And then you're home a little bit earlier. You're kind of done with your day, and it's still the psychological kind of effect of having this light still outside when you're home, mm-hmm. and you don't have to do anything except cook and eat, mm-hmm. and kind of fuck around. I mean that that changed everything for me. Yeah, and that's that's a recent development. That's in the past year and a half. Yeah. So I'm 30. So you know, never too late. I mean, yeah. The the morning and I tried I tried. The morning workout, it was like smoking. Mm-hmm. I kept trying it, and I tried it for years and years until, I don't know, it only takes one time to catch. Right. And I finally caught, and it's, it's pretty fucking sweet. Now, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, wanna, I would prefer that I got up earlier to have more time in my morning, but I don't want to change my workout, though. Why not? Because my workout for me is a, like a, uh, a little airlock that I can use to blow off stress. Mm. And um, so having it there at the end of the day is a good place for me to take all that, you know, anger and rage from working in a sales job and, and you know, right. going to the gym. And instead of yeah. taking it out on my wife, I can take it out on, you know, on, on myself at the gym. Um, so I kind of I kind of like looking forward to the gym at okay. the end of the day as something that, okay, if I get my shit done and I can get out of here at a decent time, um, I then get I get to go, go to the gym. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I, I think it would be helpful, healthy and helpful if I could, you know, maybe get up in the morning and go for a run or something, you know? Um, but I'm not trying to put my, my gym workout in, into the morning. The other part of that is, um, you know, being in, in the, my, just my professional role. If I showed up, if I showed up at the, if I was in the office at 8am every morning, 7am in the morning, whatever it is, um, like I said, my, my, my the bullshit part of my job is to, it's a gas. I mean, if I just right, give myself right. more hours at the office, then I will just have more bullshit. Um, so if like I if I, if I get in there at eight, I'm leaving at seven p.m. If I get if I get in the office at ten, I'm leaving at seven p.m. Oh, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, mar- most of my motivation to be a little bit more disciplined in my morning routine is really just more dean stuff, not not professional. Well, stuff. I don't know, man. With your schedule, it works out with your wife's schedule. Y'all, y'all are pretty, kids. y'all yeah. are pretty synced up. I mean, I don't really see how much you could tweak it because the cost would be at sleep, and that's something I'm not willing to sacrifice. No. So the only, the, the, I mean, honestly, the benefit would be getting up and uh, and getting my run in because honestly, like the older I get, you know, I, I need to be a little more conscious of my metabolism, mm-hmm. you know, my my eating habits, um, and. Uh, and I know I've noticed that the cardio, uh, like not, I mean, I'm doing the same workout mix that I that I used to do. You know, it's less what, effective now at 34. What are you doing? Was. What are you working? On? So background for y'all, Dean and I worked out together in the afternoon mm-hmm. uh, for a few years. Yeah, year, boom, more than a few, maybe yeah, four or five. Six, yeah, yeah, at least three years. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, what does what does your routine look like these days? So right now, routine, um, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Okay, so the workout routine is. Uh, Actually, this is something that I would like to tweak a little bit. Um, so the workout routine right now is uh, 
two days a week uh, at the gym, lift, you know, just doing exclusively lifting, you know, um, two days a week, um, just doing exclusively cardio, just running with the dog, doing the dog park, you know, whatever, um, that stuff. Um, Saturdays are usually a, you know, like a sprint workout. And then Sundays are my, my off days. That's um, only five. Right. So what's the other off day? Friday, Friday's the other off day. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. And, and Friday's usually, usually an off day, depending on what's going on socially. You know, okay. if they're, you know, a lot of times there's stuff planned for Friday evenings. Like this Friday. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so if there's something planned for a Friday, then yeah, Friday's an off day. If, if not, then, you know, I might, I might go up to the gym or, or whatever, or, or use Friday as like a catch up day. If there's like yeah. a work thing that means I can't do my Tuesday workout or whatever, then I'll use Friday as the, as the catch up day. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's the workout routine. I would like to do a little bit more of everything. I would like to do a little bit more weights and I'd like to do a little bit more cardio. Um, and that's why I think getting up in the morning and, and making sure that there's a, you know, jog for a mile, you know, yeah. whatever in the morning, um, would be nice, but I've been saying that for a long time and I, I have yet to do it. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is more of an aspiration than a, uh, than yeah. a routine. So for me it is. And the best thing about the morning workout is I get five days a week. No excuses because there's nothing going on in that time block. Right. I'm in bed early every Thursday there's night. There's no conflict there. There's no conflict. Right. So the morning switching to the morning routine opened up my I mean, totally guilt-free Friday afternoons and weekends because I take Saturday, Sunday off. Yeah. Um, I mean, I very rarely work out on Saturday, Sunday unless I've uh, missed a day during the week. And if that happens, usually I'll just work out that afternoon, come home a little late. Yeah. Um, because, right, weeknights, school nights, there's really not anything going on in them. Right. In, in any case. Well, and honestly, you make a good point because that's, that's the problem with my routine is – uh, you know, if, if we have somebody coming in town to meet with us or whatever, and they want to go do a dinner, you know, then all of a sudden my workout routine is, is thrown out of whack because I've got this professional commitment. Um, but if your workouts are in the morning and you have to go have drinks or have dinner with somebody in the evening, that's fine. Right. Cause you've already checked that box. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so the other thing it's good for is when I'm traveling for work, there's, I mean, I, I asked that there be a gym or whatever hotel I go to, which is, you know, that's, that's relatively trivial to, right. to schedule. And so I, if there's not, you can go for a run. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm up in the mornings and before my work day abroad. Right. Cause usually when you're traveling for work, there's drinks involved in the afternoon. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm up in the morning, I'm doing my thing and it, it, it doesn't traveling doesn't mess with your schedule very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of another, an, another benefit of the, of, of the, other morning deal. Yeah, and I've got a lot better about working out when I travel for work. That was always something that I was just I always just kind of told myself that when I was traveling for work, okay, workouts are off. I'll yeah. catch up when I get back. Um, as I've gotten older and, and you know traveling more, um, you can't really catch up. That doesn't it doesn't yeah, work it doesn't that work way. That way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you got you got to stay with it. So um, you know, thankfully, a lot of the colleagues that I travel with are also kind of you know they, they work out as well. So um, you know, we typical can fucking sales bros. Yeah, we kind of <laughs> hold each other accountable and. Nobody wants to be the one guy who wants to just sleep in and, and right. you know, while everyone else is going to the gym. So. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Let's get a pump in for this sale, bro. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, my God. We are fucking meatheads. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. I, yeah. So, yeah. I I think that kind of the, the meathead designation is, I don't know, it's it's misplaced. These, these guys out here. We're not meatheads. I mean, we're not, we're meathead, not meathead is a, is a thing. All right, but just because you work out doesn't mean you're a meathead. I don't bench enough to be considered a meathead. Me neither. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm almost there. Someday. 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 Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm not big enough to be a meathead. Uh, but look, these guys. I don't listen to enough speed metal to be a meathead either. Uh, I mean, it's a good workout music. I I listen to a lot of metal. Yeah. yeah. For for the workout. I prefer Mastodon for my workouts. Ooh, Mastodon's good. Mastodon's good, but they only have a limited number of albums, honestly. Um, I've started, okay, all right. I've started to listen to a lot of, like, Synthwave. Synth, I know you at have. The gym. I, but that's too mellow for me for At The Gym. Mm, I need got, something that's going to, like... Something it's got a really good build, though, you know? The songs are really long, and they, and they really do have a, a, a nice, like progression through the song so by the end of it you're just like Rah! You know? <laughs> um, yeah but it does kind of have that slow build which honestly kind of fits with my my workout yeah. mentality you know when you get there you're like okay i'm at the gym again all right god damn it really you know, I, it, I like to jump it, right like, into Rah. it so oh so okay my gym routine i do like to jump right into it so um monday wednesday friday cardio only i have a i have a knee thing i have a fucked up knee so i don't do jogging it's a little bit too high impact sure um so i hit the elliptical i do the elliptical for 35 minutes um does about 500 calories i do pretty high rate of speed Uh so monday wednesday friday i get in elliptical right off the bat i'm going uh i kind of i do either metal or um kind of electronic music mixes that are like very high uh beats per minute um so i jump right into that that's a monday wednesday friday I sweat a lot. I mean, it's a good it's a good cardio activity. I'm yeah. exhausted by the end of it. Um, and then on Tuesday, Thursday, it's weights. But I start out the weights. I don't like to build. I like to jump right into it. So I do five to ten minutes, depending on how kind of hardcore I'm feeling, um, on the elliptical. Mm-hmm. And I, I get on the elliptical, and I go as fast as I can. Get your for, heart rate up. Get my heart rate up to like a 130 or something like that on the elliptical. Uh Honestly, typically about five minutes. Ten is like if I'm really – maybe I ate a lot the night before and I just have much energy. Yeah. And then I do just a combined circuit day. So I do um, legs and then I do back and shoulders and then I do, you know, uh, chest and triceps. Yeah. As kind of like some supersetted stuff. And then if I'm feeling like I'm trying to work my aesthetics, I'll work a set of like curls in there. Oh, come on, man. That, that has to be a, a mainstay. Dude. Well, so the nice thing is that the pull-ups actually pump, give, yeah, me, give yeah. me a really good pump on my biceps. But if I'm feeling like uh, they're kind of lagging behind my triceps, which kind of get a double or triple with the flies and the bench, right? Um, then, yeah, I'll, I'll go and get, I'll go and do the um, preacher curl to burn out. There you go. But the, so I, I had a knee injury, as, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. My entire left leg was isolated for a period of months, and man, it was so skinny and gross. I mean, it was like, it was bad. It yeah. it looked weird. It looked it. I mean, it's crazy how much muscle degeneration you'll have if your muscles completely isolated. Yeah. So my left leg, I mean, there was like no muscle left, and it was like I couldn't walk, and it, it was crazy. Um, only and that was in 2013, so it's five years later. Only now, I mean, literally this morning in the shower. I was washing myself, and I looked down at my left Go leg, on. On. and I was like, damn, it's pretty meaty. I yeah. can't fit. Like, I cannot even close to fit both my hands around my uh, thigh anymore on my left leg. So it's finally getting, it's finally almost oh, back to like, it's a beefy, meaty leg again. Yeah. Whew. I mean, it like, I remember taking the um, isolating mechanism off my leg and like looking down, 
and it was like I could almost, I mean, I could easily hit fit two hands. I mean, oh, it was so gross. Really? Wow. It was so weird seeing my leg like that. Yeah. I bet. Um, I bet. I mean, obviously, and this is, I don't know how appropriate this is, but I mean, my first thought was like, I like Holocaust victims legs. It's like super skinny and gross. Like if there weren't so much skin there, because the de- degeneration happened so fast, it would have like, oh man, it was so gross. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't even walk on it. There's so little muscle there. Man. Um, anyway, now I'm back. I have a nice, thick, meaty thigh now on my left leg. As a result of your routine. As a result of the routine. Yeah. 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 There you so, go. Okay. So, Dean, here's a question. When did you feel like you made, if ever, a transition from no routine to routine? And I imagine this conversation will involve kind of the college to work transition. And that was really it. It was, it was moving down and, and uh, you know, starting up uh, full-time job moving to Houston um that was really the the the, the moment where a, a routine became a thing and it, it did it took me several months to figure out a routine um but yeah it was definitely that you know the professional life uh triggered the cultivation of a routine type type mentality um because you know in, in college nobody has a routine you know I, I mean your schedule changes all the time uh you know you're Everything, your social stuff is so schizophrenic and all over the place. Um, yeah, so, but I, I did struggle moving, you know, co- moving into a professional life um, because I still kind of tried to live that same college lifestyle of, you know, Wednesday nights are totally fair game for just, you know, balling out of control. Um, and it, it took a while for, for me. And, and now I'm very comfortable with my, you know, kind of life rule that school nights are kind of off limits. Yeah. You know, for a lot of things. I mean, you and I, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I, I made that transition to the work life later than you. But, uh, uh, yeah, while you're working, I remember you and I were, I mean, going out a lot on weeknights. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When, when, I first, when we both first moved down to Houston. Um, well, you, move, you moved here about a year, maybe a year and a half before I did. Right. Right. Um, and I moved down to Houston right about the same time that a lot of, you know, my folks in my, you know, that my graduating class college, there was a big group of us that all moved down to Houston at about the same time. And, uh, we kind of kept our college lifestyle going for that first year or so, um, until we kind of all realized collectively, like much more than that. Uh, Maybe it was longer than that. Yeah. No, cause you remember at, um, at that apartment complex you were living at. Yeah. I mean, so that was, I mean, we did that lifestyle for long time several years yeah maybe it was yeah. like three years yeah yeah until you y'all got that house right over yeah. right over there uh-huh. when what, what year was that how long have you had this place right here we moved in here about 2013 wow okay and you had the house so we're talking about 2012 2011 you know what yeah yeah that, that sounds exactly right yeah it was about 2011 when did you graduate oh gosh yeah so i mean we were i moved to houston in 2008 so three years yeah three so years. three years of of Debauchery. Yeah, debauchery, yeah. 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 I, uh, that, that sounds right, though. Yeah. I think that timeline meshes up. I think so. Well, then. Hey, hey I, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, we, I think I need to take a, do a little bio here, man. All right, let's do it. Okay. I got to refill my coffee. Yeah, and I'm out of coffee as well. Okay. Right back. Okay. All right. All right, back. So right. we're talking about the three years. So three years. 2008 through 2011. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I think that was a lot due to the place you lived, the apartment cabin. Well, I mean, it aligned very nicely to what was probably our inclination at that point. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, even even when we were living that, you know, still kind of like post-college throwback lifestyle, I still had a pretty solid routine Yeah. of, you well, know, working at a certain time, working out at certain times, you know. And, and, yeah, we were, you know, kind of putting some stuff in on the on the back end of that routine a little bit more frequently than we otherwise would have. But, well, uh, I, I mean, you started the workout when? Because you got kind of big pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, right when I first moved down to Houston, um, I mean, you know, I had a few friends from college that were down here, but I didn't really have a whole lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so going to the gym was kind of a, you know, a way to, you know, have something to do. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was kind of a, you know, it was a young apartment complex or a lot of, you know, just, you know, recent college graduates there. Um, so it was a cool place to go, you know, like, you know, meet people and, and hang out with, you know, other folks. Um Actually, that's I mean, that's where I met my wife. You know, yeah. was at that uh, that apartment complex gym. Um, so, yeah, there was part of it that was you know mental health. You know, working out, just trying to feel better. But then there was also there was a social component to yeah. having that that routine at that apartment complex because that's what everybody else was doing. Very you know? true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's where I mean I worked out with you there mm-hmm. for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, so I moved to Houston and pretty much immediately started working out. With right you there because i had a we had a, another buddy that that was working out with me before you and i started working out working out together which which one was then uh oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, I remember i remember yeah. and then uh and then he <laughs> we'll spare off. we'll spare you bro right <laughs> <laughs> and then he kind of dropped off um and then you moved down and you kind of you came in and kind of filled that filled that spot um fill your spot anytime dino yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so i don't know i think um Probably most people that are listening to this probably have you know something similar. They've got a a routine, a routine, right? But I think you it's know, kind of a normal human thing to do. Okay, so here's a point of demarcation. I have a friend who thrives on not really having a routine. Mm-hmm. So different bedtime every night. Sometimes stay up later. Sometimes not. Variable going into work. I mean, this person works for a company that is a household name. You'll, I mean, everybody who's listening to this will will, will know what it is. And uh, yeah, yeah, no schedule. Lots of travel. Mm -hmm. Doesn't come at predictable times. Even when uh, this person is back at home doing their job in the office, not predictable times. Um, And thrives on it. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I guess whatever it is, the opposite I mean, you can imagine whatever the thing you have going on, there's somebody out there who has the opposite thing going on. Right. right? So whatever, right? So like the the classic unbreakable, so Mr. Glass versus, right, Bruce Willis. For, <laughs> right? So for, you know, for my Mr. Glass, there's some unbreakable guy out there who just can't can't keep me down with this schedule, man. Right, yeah. Uh, so so I, I think that exists too. Yeah, and some people do, you know, thrive a little. That uh, they they feel stifled by a repetitive routine, right. you know. Um, and I probably have a little bit of that in me. Yeah. Um, and you know, thankfully, my my professional life does, um, you know, change things up for me pretty frequently. Um, yeah, I do, I do travel quite a bit, um, which you know, you do your best to try to maintain a routine while you're traveling, but right. it, it is pretty disruptive. Um, so. I, I do think that at a certain point I would feel kind of stifled and stale. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know I'm 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 fortunate in that my my professional life 
um, requires a little bit of variance, yeah. which, you know, probably gives me that, that little, that flexibility that I, I might otherwise feel that I'm, I'm like lacking. Yeah. You know, I think for me, I thought I was that person and then I wound up not being that person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I thought like, I'm I don't want structure. I don't want it. I don't want it. But once I kind of, I mean, by necessity, I mean, I was coming, you know, it was just, it was not tenable at mm-hmm. some point. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, right? I thought I was. I, so human beings, it turns out, and I wish I had this specific study in hand, but I don't. Human beings are just notoriously bad at predicting in the, you know, towards the future, what's going to make them happy, mm-hmm. right? So Dean might think, man, if I switched, like, got a little more time in the morning, that's what I need. Right, it's actually maybe I don't know. I'm pulling this number out of my head, but you know, six percent chance. Ah, you're probably wrong about that. Actually. Yeah, you yeah. know, grass is always greener. The thing that I'm doing is not what I should be doing, right? So I thought I had a pretty clear picture of what it is the life that's going to make Luke happy and effective and productive, and you know, all the things that we need to be happy: autonomy, mastery, mm-hmm. impact. Right? That's the that's the Oh, what's that stupid book? It uh, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Is it the Seven Habits of Highly Effect? No, no, no. it's um, it's uh, Drive. It's called Drive. Oh, I don't know that one. Anyway, so the the thesis of the book essentially is that there's three things three things that people need in order to feel good, and it's not monetary reward. It's feeling like what you do. Um, you uh, have achieved or are achieving some level of mastery. Mm-hmm. You're in the top percentage of that specific thing you do. Uh, autonomy, nobody's telling you what to do. You're making your own decisions about how you do the thing you do. And uh, impact, the thing you do actually matters. Mm-hmm. So when those three things are being satisfied, bonuses and monetary rewards and other, you know, other carrot or stick type stuff is not very effective unless it falls into one of those three categories. Sure. Maximize one. In, in any case. Yeah, I feel that, um, yeah, I, I thought that structure would be antithetical to me achieving the things I need to be happy. And turns out that was not true. Yeah. And it turns out that pattern plays itself out in general in the human population that we're just not so great at predicting what it is that's going to make us happy. So we have to maybe lean a little more more heavily on received wisdom. Sure. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question. But I feel like that regardless of of what type of person we might be talking about, that I feel like everybody has some sense of a, of a routine, you know, whether we're yeah. that, that, you know, our, our friend who has a more, you know, fluid lifestyle, you know, or someone like yourself who has a very set standard routine. Um, I imagine that every person probably feels like I do have a routine and my yeah. routine might compass some variance um but it's still a routine that's it it's, it's going to be a bell curve i imagine because i'm sorry like we are still creatures that require a certain amount of framework in order to function you know and whatever kind of elasticity there is in that framework we all i mean that i think that's just kind of the human nature thing uh, in play there that that we all want to to kind of feel that that there's some familiarity in our activity and that 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 I'm not a imposter in my, in my own life, that this is actually my life and that I have some kind of control over it. And that kind of, that control is, is my, my ability to say that this is what I do every day, or this is what I, I like to do or, or whatever it is. And I feel like we, even if 
regardless of how fluid our lifestyle is, that we still want to feel that we have a routine. Because um, I think that's a kind of a safety thing yeah. for, for us. I mean, maybe not like a physical safety thing, but just a, an emotional health type thing that we want to feel like that when I wake up in the morning that I kind of have some idea what the hell I can expect out of today. I, I mean, it's about control, right? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, and that you know, that, that we, we feel like, okay, I can face this day like I can face all of these other days because I know that I have some say in what this day is, and um, and that some of this day is is occurring the way it's occurring because I made it so. Yeah, I mean, I th- I feel like predictability is is a big part of this part of the conversation because predictability means that um, you know you have faced these challenges and overcome these challenges before. Right, that the thing in front of you, which if we, you know, are being honest, is a big question mark. It's an unknowable thing. The hours that have not yet, you know, mm-hmm. happened to us, um, we have no way of, 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 of knowing what that's going to be like, right? Yeah. They could be insurmountable. But, you know, for, and this is just kind of a basic, I think, and the lizard part of our brain, we want to forecast or telegraph some amount of certainty onto the uncertain. Yeah. We want to make a yes. pattern out of chaos, right? Such, you know, the chaos of our future. We want to overlay some amount of certainty onto that well, because, so be, be, because it makes us feel good and it allays certain concerns that we have, you know, at a, yeah. at a very animalistic level about our survivability. I think that's exactly right. That you know, if if you're if you wake up in the morning and you look at your day and you go, okay, I have you know X responsibilities, and I have no idea what the manifestation of those responsibilities are going to look like in my day. You know, that's situation A. And situation B is okay. I know that I have certain amount of responsibilities, but I know that they have to fit within these hours because of, you know at at this cut, hard cutoff point, I am either going to the gym or I'm having dinner with my partner or. Um, I'm going to this class or, you know, whatever it is that, that, um, that the potential challenges that you're looking at, that you're staring down the barrel of when you wake up in the morning have a, they're contained, you know, because if there's no routine, then those responsibilities can grow and just take over all of your waking hours. But if you know that, Hey, seven o'clock I'm cooking dinner or seven o'clock I'm going to the, you know, whatever it is, you know that, okay, there's, there's at least a wall that keeps that responsibility from, bleeding over into 2 a.m., you know, yeah. and, and I'm never getting to sleep and fuck yeah. my life, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I wonder if, like, you know, ancient man, you know, the the species that experienced all of the things that, you know, gave rise to our, you know, whatever behaviors and needs and desires and, you know, biological and, you know, evolutionary needs that we experience in this weird way right now. So I guess like early man's instincts that we that are like interacting with modern things like work. Right? Oh no, I agree clearly that um, you know early man's tendency or you know the 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 emergence of the reality that the the type of person who is going to be you know every day going to you know check on their fishing traps and check right. on the crops that they planted. And, or, I'm gonna or know where the, the every day the game trails are or whatever it is. Every day I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna gather berries. Then I'm right. gonna check my traps and then I'm gonna go hunt. I'm gonna stop and drop all this stuff out with uh, you know the the folks that are gonna process it and then I'm gonna go back out. Mm-hmm. Every day I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna 
those are the two people that were more likely to survive survive and right. pass on their genes. Yeah, and the and the guy who woke up and said, "I don't know what I'm going to do today. Right, I'm going to go." Walk right. around in the woods, you know. Like, <laughs> probably didn't have uh, as high a likelihood of of you know banging and breeding, you know. Yeah. But but it survived because every once in a while, the guy walking through the woods discovered some new shit that was yep. very very beneficial, and I think that survived. But it survived on the far end of the bell curve. Mm-hmm. That's not right? the norm. Yeah, that's that's not the norm. But you're still going to experience it because it's extremely valuable, right? That kind of novelty, in the same way that genetic novelty is a necessity to our survival. That kind of behavioral um, novelty. Behavioral novelty is also. And that might be a little bit, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and obviously modern, first world, you know, relatively comfortable American life does give a lot more space for you know those more. Um, you know, non-traditional, non-routine type lifestyles than than probably like early survival may have. You know, but when I kind of think about it, I think that there's kind of the same amount of risk involved, right? Really? So if if you're if you're think about it like this, so very predictable kind of stuff. The modern version of that is like a nine to five job. It's mm-hmm. a salaried employee. It's more predictable, but there's a lower rate of return. Than somebody who's going to be a higher risk taker, uh, a uh, an entrepreneur, and the thing is, a Maybe. greater a greater amount of entrepreneurs are going to fail mm-hmm. than the ones that succeed. But the ones right. that succeed get a much higher rate of return on their efforts than folks that are in the middle of the bell curve and are just saying, oh, "I'm going to pick a job, I'm going to mm-hmm. earn a salary. It's much safer." But you know, on the kind of on the kind of higher end, there's 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 less return. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I feel like that is such a low probability play. That what like, is? Uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurship. Okay, know. so but but that's exactly what I'm arguing, right? Is the entrepreneurs are the guys that are kind of wandering through the forest. Right. There's a very low chance that they're going to find something that's going to pay off big time. That happens one percent of the time. The other 90% die off, but the rate of return is so high on that 1% that that mindset survives in our evolution, but still at the far end of that bell curve. Sure. Oh, yeah. My only point was just that that our current modern, you know, realities of, of you know, first world, whatever life, um, give that that mindset, that non-traditional, non-routine, I'm going to kind of, you know, dance to the beat of my own drum type, right. type of lifestyle. Um we give that a lot more space, a lot more, or a lot more, you know, opportunity to occur than than would have been, you know, three thousand years ago, or maybe more, because the space that I think we create for that. So think in three spaces of time. So you think modern world, and then you think pre-modern, and then you think prehistory. Mm-hmm. So prehistory is right, just like Ooga Booga Caveman, right? Like, yeah. Um, those wandering in the forest is like, I'm going to find a mushroom that heals us. Yeah. It's nothing more than that. I think in pre-modern history, we create more of a space for that. The shaman is kind of the non-worker, right? So the shaman is going to be a, a kind of a our first creative worker space. Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Because we're not talking about productivity. We're talking about routine. So that shaman, you know, may not be, may not be productive in the traditional sense. They may not be growing the food and, and making the, you know, houses and whatever. But they still have a routine. They're still very, you know, ritualistic and 
they still have, you know, obligations to meet and, and, you know, a constituency to, to, you know, placate. Sure. Um, I'm, 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 uh, abstracting this a bit admittedly. Right. But what I would argue here is that the shaman type or the priest type or the healer type, or kind of even later in the uh, pre-modern is the writer or the scientist type. Those behaviors are going to trend a little bit less towards highly structured than the norm. Really? You think so? I mean, I don't see because I feel like okay, I feel like we're talking. We might be talking about two different things. We're talking we, about, we we very well maybe. Yeah, the, the difference between a uh, you know traditionally productive like worker member of society versus a, a less traditional. Um, you know, either aesthetics or intellectual or whatever it is uh, type, you know, s- social member. Um, that That's one type of distinction. So but, so, but so here's here's what I'm latching onto is the thing okay. you said is that we give a little bit more space nowadays for that non-structured type of schedule individual. Right. And so let's take what we have now and I want to work backwards and say – now, yes, we give plenty of space for that person to be successful and survivable, and they have a much greater chance of passing on their genes than they would have in pre-modern times, which mm-hmm. has a little bit more restricted survivability for those kind of individuals. And I would argue that in prehistory, much more restricted, right? So you're looking at it, it's basically a triangle. Yeah, yeah. What, what I guess the distinction I'm trying to make is between, not between a traditional uh you know, productive worker type and a more intellectual or, or cosmetically focused uh, worker type. I'm more looking at the, 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 the type of person that is has a, uh, a daily structure, a daily routine versus a, a person who doesn't have a daily structure or a daily routine. And those intellectual or, or artistic or creative types can still have as much of a structure as the, you know, traditional, you know, productive house sure. builder, weapon maker, you know, food grower type, sure. type person. Um, so the, I think that the non-routine person can fit into any category, whether they are, you know, a more intellectual creative type or whether they're more traditional, you know, production type person. Um, what I'm saying is that the, 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 the lack of the routine is the distinction that we're, that we're trying to point to. And that can be a person in any walk of life. Um, but the person who says that I don't know what the hell I'm going to do today, whether that's I don't know what the hell I'm going to do today in my role as a you know spiritual leader, yeah. or I don't know what the hell I'm going to do today in my role as a farmer, um, we probably give that that type of person has a little bit more freedom to to live that kind of unstructured life today than they used to have, you know, three thousand years ago or five hundred years ago. Okay, yeah, I I agree you know with saying? that. Yeah, the, there's still something in me that wants to associate. The kind of unstructured, um, less routine with kind of the type of creative work that is going to be more rewarding. Well, and maybe that's probably not very true either because some of the most productive folks I know as they do creative work are very structured. Right. In, in the they way put they a do lot it. of hour into their art. They really yeah. do. They yeah. really do. And so if you read They're like – probably sti- more structured than – I agree. Yeah. I agree. So creative folks – I, I think you're right. Another thing about creative folks tend to be more successful the more structured they are. It's a less traditional routine, but they're probably more dedicated to their routine yeah. than somebody like you and I might be. Yeah. So what's the – and this is – there's no real answer here, but I'm wondering like well, how does this kind of 
non-routine kind of approach to life survive from an evolutionary perspective? I think it's a decadence. Yeah? I think it's something that we permit, not necessarily something that we need. So maybe like this is just something that we're all inclined to, and some of us are either better situated or better inclined by virtue of our personalities to deal with and be successful despite it. Right, right, yeah. But, yeah, but, but why does that drive exist in the first place if it's not beneficial in some way? Because I'm sure that it is beneficial in some way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess we're just not smart enough to figure out in which way it's beneficial. Well, I mean, you know, I think one of humanity's strength and man, I'm so out of my element talking about this kind of stuff. But, hey, um, me too. <laughs> well, that maybe could be the name of our podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're out of our element, Donnie. Um, that uh, a lot of innovations, individual innovations in human advancement, um, you know, come from people who don't really fit well into like, you know, whatever traditional molds exist at the time. You know I mean? They're always yeah. trendsetters, mold breakers, and, you know, uh, outside the box type thinker people. Um, and I think our species does benefit by people that are able to look at things from a different perspective and do yeah. some weird shit. And honestly, we're going to give a lot of, you know, we're probably going to let a thousand people try some weird, goofy shit. And we're going to like indulge them with, you know, the limited resources that we have as a, as a species in order to exist and allow these, you know, goofballs to do their goofball shit, um, for the, for the one out of every thousand that yeah. comes up with something that's like, Oh yeah. fuck man, you've actually came up with something that's going to make everybody's lives better. Yeah. So, well, that's, um, that's kind of how genetic variation works, too. You yeah. Know, one time out of 10,000, will it actually be beneficial? The other 10,000 times, uh, it's actually it's, it's going to kill you. Yeah. Or, right? or it's going to put a huge burden on the rest of the social members right. to like keep your ass alive. And so then... it exists necessarily at the far end of the bell curve, but when it does hit, it hits hard. Right. right? And it makes these big leaps like the rest right. of us, you know, just being our worker ant life, you know, we're going to we're going to have these little small incremental increases in, in right. you know, human progress. Um, but the, you know, kind of more, um, uh, you know, it fringe drastic revolutionary yeah, right? exactly. uh, paradigm they're, they're shifting huge failure rates. Right. But the times that they do succeed, there's big leaps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That and makes I think sense. Maybe that's why like the non routine mentality is a good thing and yeah. should exist, but like maybe shouldn't be everybody. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, I mean, I think maybe that drive isn't everybody, or at the very least, we all see that archetype, right, and as something that is desirable in some way, right? Beneficial, the, yeah. The the person that is this going off on their own, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of our Byronic hero, right? Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all do kind of romanticize that that artist or that thinker or philosopher or whatever it is. And I'm sure there's a part of every person that thinks, man, it'd be kind of fun to be, you know, that kind of free thinking, intellectual right. artist, creative type, whatever it is. Um, because we only see the success stories. Right. But there's t- 99,999 failure stories that are kind of sad. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 The, the art school student who's now waitressing at Disneyland. You know? Well, I mean, I'm an art school student who is now, like, has a normal job, right? Right. Because you sold out. <laughs> I did. Yeah. <laughs> the money's too good. The money's too good. The money's too good. Well, you know, so I... Hey, man, we're all selling out. We just have different prices. Well, so, so here's the thing that I have honestly made my peace with is that, you know, I never went to school with any of these folks, but mm-hmm. I know that they exist kind of by 
honestly, secondhand sources, right? But it's it's really rare. Um, and so there's people that are creative because they have an inclination to be creative, right? And Or they have a talent that was rewarded early on mm-hmm. to being creative, or they see a lifestyle that they like and try to kind of approximate that lifestyle by being creative. And that's like 99% of people who do creative work. Um, you Right? And a lot of them like are very good at it and are very naturally inclined to do it um, and can be very successful if they get down and do the work. Right? But it's not going to be easy. It's like mm-hmm. kind of having a it's job. Yeah. You're going to get down and you're just going to need to do the work. But there's a very small percentage of people, and this, in any field you're in, this will be a thing. So it's true of all fields, and it's true of the creative field as well. As well. And I'm, I say creative, and I'm kind of mixing my, uh, mixing this kind of with uh, uh, artistic work mostly. Sure. But in, in anything you do, there's going to be a small percentage of folks who seem to be driven by some sort of compulsion. Mm-hmm. If you're um, in the writing field, there's people out there who are going to just always be writing no matter what, and they can't stop, and they'll do it if they're broke, and they'll mm-hmm. do it if they're rich, and they'll neglect their kids to do it, and they'll neglect their spouses to do it, and they'll neglect money to do it. Mm-hmm. They'll neglect fame to do it, right? You have your kind of your uh, Harper Lee, yeah. and you have J. your J.D. Salinger. And they're just always going to be right. It's a compulsion. They can't not do it. Yeah. They can't not do it. James Salinger is a bad example because he wrote like two books. But he was always writing. Was he, he always, was always writing? But he was always writing. Was yeah. he really? He was. Oh. It just wasn't any good. And that's that's okay. Yeah. Right? He just he hit at a specific time and a specific place. Okay, specific I got you. Work. So this is a classic argument between, right, was, was, was um, – FDR. So he was writing. He just sucked. Right. After was was FDR writing. an extraordinary extraordinary man that captured the moment, or was FDR at the right place at the right time with the right personality with the right resources? And it was inevitable that an FDR was going to emerge at that moment. Mm, yeah, probably a little of both. Both. Yeah, but maybe a little bit more of the former. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. In any case, most artists and a lot of very successful and maybe even paradigm shifting artists have to and i say artists but i mean this is kind of a universal thing but paradigm even paradigm shifting folks and folks who would call geniuses reconcile themselves with the fact that i do not have a compulsion to do this sometimes and in fact most of the time this actually feels like work Mm -hmm. stephen king is one of those people he was not right he'd say i i'm not compelled to this you know, yeah. you know, he, he maybe I pushed is. myself to do this. Yeah. He pushed himself. It's a, you know, it's not always easy to sit down and start writing. So yeah. not always easy for him to. It's not always something he wants to do. But what separates what separates the amateurs from the professionals is the fact that they fucking sit down and they do it. They do it. Yeah. They have a routine. Right. So even like the huge names in any area, business, creative, whatever, there's going to be a portion of them that are compelled to do it. But the majority of the ones that are successful treat it like work. Mm-hmm. It's a routine. It's a thing that I do no matter what. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. I mean, I, that's very true in, in, in my experience professionally as well. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm in sales. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my professional existence is, I mean, pretty random. You know, I'm, I'm you know, having to respond to 
other people's uh, agendas and 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 needs and and timelines and and I have a very I have very little ability to dictate what my you know three month you know plan is going to be. I mean, I, yeah. I have to be adaptive. Um, but the really good sales folks out there do have very strict, despite the chaos of the sales life. Um, successful sales folks are very routine driven. Um, blocking off certain parts of your day to do X, certain parts of your day to do Y, um, making sure they're doing certain things every day, um, you know, maintaining, you know, certain relationships that, you know, are long-term plays. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, that is what makes a, a salesperson successful. So it, it's, it's almost, you're almost trying to force a routine and a structure onto an extremely chaotic system. And um, if you can, if you can really just like, grab that big amorphous blob and shove it into like its own little component boxes um i mean that's where success comes from um and it's the folks who who struggle getting that blob into the boxes that don't do well you know uh should we uh maybe try to uh close the garage yeah we're gonna close the door okay time out we got a neighbor working on his truck hold on (laughs) so yeah yeah i kind of forgot what we were talking about (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about um, you know the the difference between the 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 psychological tendency towards routine versus someone who doesn't like routine, and that even professionals, you know, whatever intellectuals, creatives that um, that might we may look at as non-routine people are still very. Mm. It, it seems like success in anything, uh, whether it's monetary or just you know actually like thinking new thoughts and, and doing new things um, seems to be somehow related to the ability to impose structure. Right, to build a routine in an otherwise chaotic system. So, uh, I mean, let's let's look at it like this. So you go to a nine-to-five job, it's relatively easy to impose some structure around that thing, which is already kind of, just, kind of relatively There's kind of a structure lesser. there that you're just slotting into. But if, all, if you're a writer, say... Mm-hmm. You're a freelance writer or you're a poet and all you do is write poetry. I mean, if we're being honest, if you're a poet, you probably have a nine to five at a university somewhere, right? But Right. Or a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or shit at a tech tech firm. At right? a tech firm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, June's coming at this house. you know what? I'm gonna take a little branch off here and I'll tell okay. you about another routine that I have that All has right. overlaid onto so I'm going to say two things one I'm going to say that it's more difficult to impose structure on something that is you know less um, that is a little bit more chaotic like creative work it's mm-hmm. a little bit easier to impose structure on something that is a little bit less creative like um, you know you have the same schedule working at the factory every day right, right? right. so um, in any case that, that, that work is a little bit different but it helps us be successful most of the time mm-hmm so here's the other schedule I have. It's my creative schedule, okay. and it lasts a year. Mm-hmm. And I document it um, uh, on an Excel sheet and on um, in a little. Uh, um, my partner gave me it because you're a fucking crazy person. I know. I, I hate realize this. <laughs> Um, my partner gave me a kind of a like a very nice leather bound with like a parchment paper thing, and I, I, I document this process there as well, kind of in a different way. But it feels good to kind of write it down mm-hmm. and strike things off and put dates. It's a little bit more tactile. I realize I'm rambling, but this is the schedule that uh, uh, that I use for my creative art, which is poetry. Mm-hmm. So January through March, 
this is an approximate. So we have kind of a margin of error here by uh, four weeks or so. Okay. This is the creative time. Uh, this is when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, every single day, so I talked about this a little bit. Um, I said every day I come home from work after I walk the dog, I'll write. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of a placeholder for writing, editing, submitting, talking to my editors, kind of all the poetry stuff. That, that's my block there. Right. The block is most strict when I'm writing. It's about half an hour every single day or Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I'm going to write at least one poem a day. Mm-hmm. And that's so, that's, that's um, happens sometime mid-March. Right? Yeah. Um, March-ish. And so I've got about, you know, 100 poems, mm-hmm. something like that, 90, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, right? Some of them are long, some of them are short, whatever. I don't look at them. I read them and I don't look at them. After that, I start editing them one by one. I fill that slot with editing. So okay. the first, the poem I wrote on the first or second or third of January, whichever my first poem was, that's what I do when I kind of switch over. Okay. So it's been about three months since I've seen it or thought about it. Yeah. I have a nice, good distance, clinical distance on it and start editing. Generally, of those three, out of those three months, there's about six poems that come out that are any good. Okay. Write a lot. Some are good. Most of them are just throw them away. Yeah. So I'll mark them either bad, ready to go, or needs work. Okay. So ready to go, there's probably four or five of those. Needs work, I'll work on them, and maybe one or two will come out. And mm-hmm. um, after a month or so of that, um, we're ready for summer. And summer is the submission season. So it starts in June okay. for, for, the, for the Tier 1 journals. And so I have uh, layers upon layers here. So just get ready for it. So okay. tier, tier 1 journals, uh, there's about 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, about two of them... Uh, don't submit, don't accept simultaneous submissions. I don't submit to those. Um, I will once I uh, lap myself in the cycle, which you'll okay. understand a second later. So, um, yeah, there's about 10 tier one journals. And this is like the Paris Review. This is Poetry Foundation magazine. Stuff okay. that everybody has heard of. It's what my professors get published in. All my poems, that's where they get submitted first. Okay. They're rejected 100% of the time, but that's where they go first. Okay. Right, um, so just on the off chance that the thing I wrote is just really sweet, really good, yeah. yeah. Then I'm, you know, it's not gonna get wasted in a third tier, yeah, a third tier um, rag, yeah. Which a lot of people work very hard on, so it's not a rag. I'm, nobody's gonna listen to this anyway. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a rag, right? right. Yeah. This is a rag, right? We're yeah. doing it. Um, so in June. That's where, for the tier ones, and honestly, for most other poetry magazines, that's when submissions start. So I'm going to have my kind of cadre of six or so poems ready to go by that time. And they're going to go off to the tier one magazines. And it's a period of from June to August or so. Kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of honestly, all the way to October. Um, but since we're on a one-year cycle, it, it doesn't really matter so much. So, um, all right, so six, six poems go off to... So imagine we're starting this from zero poems. We get six out of the cycle. They go to the tier ones, and they go to about eight magazines in the tier ones from the period of June to October. Mm -hmm. So October to December, I'm just kind of chilling out and reading. Yeah. I'm not really doing much of anything. I'm I'm taking a little bit of a break. Then January hits again. 
What do we do? Start writing again. We start writing again. Um, and then between the time of June and January, I'm going to start getting the rejections in. Mm-hmm. The rejections are going to come in because we're only at tier one right now. Right. Everything's going to get rejected until I'm at the level of my professors, basically. But, you know, I want to exercise all my options here. Yeah. Just in case, bro. Yeah. You get one poem in the Paris Review, you're set. Yeah. You're fucking set. In any case, I start getting the rejections in on my Excel sheet and in my loose leaf kind of uh, thing that uh, Lenny got me. I'm going to start mm-hmm. crossing them off. Yeah. Very, very tactile. Um. And then in January, I'm going to start writing again. As I write between January and editing time, start getting more rejections in. Mm-hmm. Between March and June, more rejections. So now I have two branches of poems, right? Mm-hmm. One which I'm going to have all my rejections in by about June, July. Okay. Right? So um, that's going to be, if all of them get rejected... What I have is uh, the same cadre of six poems from the previous year that have been rejected from all the tier one stuff. Mm-hmm. They're ready to be submitted to tier two. What I also have is a cadre of poems that have never been submitted to anywhere before. Mm-hmm. Those are going to get submitted back to, to tier one. Okay. So new poems, they're all getting blasted out to tier one. Old poems, they're all getting blasted out to the tier two mags. Sure. So now, in June, I have 12 poems that I'm going to be pushing out to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, There's many more tier two mags. uh, Where there was um, eight in tier one, there's going to be 16 in tier two. Okay. So I'm submitting in year two, I have 12 poems. Mm -hmm. 12 poems are getting submitted to eight magazines in the tier one and i have or six poems are getting sub- submitted to 12 magazines in tier one six poems are getting submitted to about 24 magazines in the tier two okay wow wow you man. getting complicated wow. yet yeah, so yeah, we're yeah. starting to need that excel sheet a yeah. little bit more year three we get around to june let's say one poem got picked up in tier two mm-hmm. right so i have five poems left from that First year. Okay. All were rejected from tier one. All but one were rejected from tier two. I got the tier three rags. Uh, There's about 30 of them. Yeah. Going to blast those five remaining poems from the first year we talked about out to tier three. From the previous year, we have those probably still six poems that go to tier two. We have that new batch that happened in this year three, January through March. They're going to the tier one. So we're in the you're filling a pipeline. We're in the full cycle now Mm -hmm. in year three. So what we have is about eighteen to twenty poems that are in circulation and are being kept track of. Mm -hmm. And we have about uh, we have thirty and then twenty is fifty and then ten is sixty and then we have about sixty magazines that are currently being applied to at one time. Mm -hmm. And so what we now have is a full-time job of keeping track of which poem is where. Right. And so every January through March, we come out with six poems, right? Mm -hmm. Every group of poems, it's about six. Yeah. Right. So of those six from a tier one to a tier three, we're going to get traction from 40 to 60%. We're going to get published somewhere. Wow. So it takes three. So it takes three years. So remember how many poems we had at the beginning? Yeah, about a hundred. Right. 
100 poems per year. per year. Six percent of those poems will be good. Two mm-hmm. percent of those hundred will wind up getting published. Okay. And maybe it's less than one percent of those poems will get published in a magazine which people actually read. Yeah. Um, this is the experience for poets everywhere, unless you are one of. I imagine there's about. It's less than a hundred poets, less than a hundred poets out there who get probably a poem or two a year picked yeah, up by yeah. the big guys. And the big guys, right, right, right. It's less than a hundred. Well, and you know what that is? That's just, that's a routine. Right? That's the game. Yeah. Did that make any sense? I spent a it long did. time no, explaining no. that. I mean, that's really interesting. Honestly. That's the crazy churn. So yeah. in three years, three hundred poems. You know, uh, less than one percent of them are going to be going out to to the magazine. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's mm-hmm. 300 in circulation. One of the less than one percent of those is going to get picked up year over year. I mean, it sounds like a pretty reasonable approach to it's high volume. Yeah, to, to being a creative though, right? I mean, you you do you got to understand that a lot of what you create may not land. It's gonna suck. It's gonna fucking yeah, suck. Exactly. So, so if you're a creative person, accept the fact that in you're not going to be inspired enough of the time. To create the volume that's required to be successful. Yeah. If you only write when you're inspired, you're not going to write enough to be successful. Mm -hmm. Because writing enough to be successful means having less than 1% of the shit that you write being any fucking good at all. Right. So if you know that your hit ratio is 1 out of every 100 and you're... 1 out of every 300. Or 1 out of every 300 and and you're writing, you know, 12 poems a year. Yeah. You're out of luck. There's the odds are so infinitesimal. Yeah, yeah. you're out of luck. That's why. So and there then there's those those there's going to be once in a generation. So how many people are on this earth, Dean? Uh, we're at like six and a half billion right now. Six and a half billion. Um, in the major languages, there's about eight. So say one in a billion odds, right, of being that once in a gener- generation poet who everything you write is going to be gold. Yeah. And we're not talking about every, when I say everything you write, I'm going to say like maybe cut that one in 300 to being one in 10. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. that's genius level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's a one in a billion chance that you're going to be able to be a poet out of that one in 12 that you just described. One yeah. in a billion chance. There's no lotteries that even exist in that odds. Yeah. Those odds exist only at a scale that is in our minds. Mm-hmm. They don't exist in nature. Yeah. Right. They don't exist in lotteries. They don't you can't exist in lightning strikes, right, right? Right. You're not that guy. Right. If if you were that person, you would. You if you're would, listening to this podcast, you're not that person. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You're out there. Except you're out there accepting your Nobel Prize at yeah. age, you know, 28. Yeah. Right. Congratulations, dear listeners. You are officially cogs. Well, yeah. right. And, and there's, you know, if if you're also that person, there's never been any doubt in right. your life. There is. You probably a, started at like six years old. Yeah. There's never been anything else except right. this thing. Right. Right. There there's there's no there's there's no other consideration. We're talking like Beethoven's. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um yeah, we're talking about Beethoven's, we're talking about um uh, you know, uh 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 Shakespeare's. Yeah. 
Right. The the once in a I mean Shakespeare Shakespeare is more than one in a billion. He was probably one in the history of the world. Yeah. We're talking about the greatest writer that ever lived. I think we are talking about Shakespeare. Mm. Or the greatest some would argue the greatest creative person that ever lived was, was Shakespeare. I mean that is very much biased towards a European and English language. But uh, I think it's pretty I think we could say that Shakespeare's probably the greatest playwright and our species has ever created. And poet and right. He's the best writer. He's the best writer that's ever lived. Shakespeare. Name another better writer than Shakespeare, for well, the love of God. I mean, depends on what we're talking about, what kind of writing we're talking about. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. He's the best. He's not the best novelist, but he's the best writer. A novelist is a kind of writer, and there's been no novel that I think is elevated. Are there not better novelists than Shakespeare? Shakespeare is never a novelist, so you can't. It's not apples to apples. That's what I'm saying. He's a best, novelist he's is a playwright. A novelist is a kind of writer. We're talking the taxonomy of creative, creative yeah. folks. A novelist is a kind of writer. A poet is a kind of writer. You take Shakespeare. He's a better writer than the best novelist. He's not hmm. a better novelist than the best novelist because he's not a novelist. But you're talking about higher taxonomy. He's the best. He's a better writer. Yeah. So you have two lawyers. One's a bankruptcy lawyer, and one of them tries criminals. Okay, this guy's a pretty good criminal attorney, but then you have a fucking genius at bankruptcy law that revolutionaries that that revolutionizes not just bankruptcy but law itself. He's a better lawyer. Yeah. Shakespeare elevates not just writing. Shakespeare elevated language itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, language itself. As a tool of humanity, whereas a novelist just writes good books within that context. Good, I don't have a good counterpoint, so I have a hard time saying I disagree with you. Luke wins. But, Luke wins. <laughs> <laughs> but man, yeah, I, I, I have a hard time putting best writer label on anyone. Shakespeare. Um, okay, yeah, yeah but, but like I said, I, I don't have a good counterpoint right now, so uh, maybe that is the case. It's, it's, as far as I know, I, as far I as I know what Shakespeare's routine looks like. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I mean, he wrote, an, he wrote, he was extremely prodigious. Um, prolific? Prolific. Prodi- what does prodigious mean? Prodigious means like large, like big, like, oh, yeah. uh, which might apply. No. You know, he is a, he is a titan of the literary world. He indeed is. Yeah. Uh, he's prodigious and very prolific. So look at that probably involved a large amount of grindstone. Yeah. So there's a, and I wish I could remember who it was. But this kind of sums up this conversation nicely. Okay. Success is the product of a productive monotony. Mm. So to unpack all the parts of that, we're going to go through kind of what our whole podcast was. We have monotony, which we resist because it's boring and it's kind of a loaded statement. Add productive to it. It's a productive monotony. Mm -hmm. It's a routine that bears fruits. And over a long enough time, those fruits equal success. So success is the result of a productive monotony. Keep your nose to the grindstone. You have a, a routine for what it is. And in the moment, if you take on any individual day, it may seem boring Yeah. to a college kid. You say, oh, look at that old suit. He does the same thing every day. Right, he must hate his life, yeah. But if you zoom out on that, you start to realize that monotony bears the fruits that chaos cannot Mm-hmm. And over an even longer timeline, right? If those fruits are, you know, good enough, right? That I mean, that equals true success. 
as the true poets of our time, the rap artists say, do work. Do fucking work. Do work, man. We grinding. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this is Luke and Dean. We out here. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Later, right, nerds. Kiddos. On to the next. Peace.